I don't know if you remember when you were in Minneapolis I I last year. Yes. Okay, we did that. <laughs> People are still talking about that panel discussion and about the speech you gave. Oh well, <laughs> it was a great, it was a yeah. great couple of days, yeah, wasn't it? I thought it was. I, I know you do a lot of that. Uh, does it always go so well? Um. Not always, no. Yeah. <laughs> so that, no, that was that was a, that was very nice. It was yeah. particularly nice. Well, this is a very civilized community out in the middle of America. Yes. <laughs> oh, Mitch, you're making. Oh, I'm playing with my watch. Is that what you're hearing? Okay. Um, I think should we just get going here? Let's ju- let's just All do right. it and see how we get on. Well, I don't. I'm. I can't remember where we were with the program now, but it, now we launched this program called Speaking of Faith as a weekly uh, national program. In uh, the summer, we're growing. We're on in over 50 markets now. We're on in six of the top 10 markets. We're in New York and Los Angeles and Washington and good places. Um, and it's called Speaking of Faith. And so I say that I let religious people speak in religious ways. Mm-hmm. And what I thought I'd like to do with you today in terms of your, your new book um, is trace uh, not so much the, your, your life story, but, but focus in on the, how your theology developed in that life story and let that mm-hmm. be how we, how we focus our conversation. Okay, that, okay. that sounds good. And I'll, yes. and I'll, <clears throat> I'm the one who asked the question, so it's up to me to make that happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know my you're job. Only as good, you're only as good as your interviewer. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, so I want to start. Again, you know, I don't want to spend... I, I also had read uh, previously your first memoir, mm-hmm. so I had read that. And, um, and, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on, on your time... Um, in the religious order, but we obviously have to start there. And so what I, I the way I thought I would just uh, put that question as we begin is, um, you know, how do you think now about how that experience limited uh, your theology? Well, well, I think... There wasn't very much theology involved uh, in my convent years. Um, We rather took the idea of God for granted as a being who would listen, who was present, who'd somehow made the world and who had appeared on earth in Jesus Christ. But... uh, And we were introduced to a little theology, but not, not very much. I think uh, the limiting factor was the the lifestyle because uh, we were not encouraged to think or explore. Uh, Obedience was the key. And we had to, in common with most religious orders at that time, we were supposed to be subservient to our superiors, seeing them in the place of God. Right. Um, and not in, in following your own thoughts through or exploring ideas or expressing doubt or confusion because your job was not to reason why yours but to do and die. I mean, we were supposed to be soldiers of Christ and and, and obey as implicitly as uh, soldiers obey their commanding officer. Right. It, um, it, it is ironic, though, because all of those practices and structures presumably had been created with the object that you would become closer to God through living that way. 
That's true. But then many of these practices had congealed over the centuries. Mm-hmm. I mean, and, and so that what had been appropriate when in the 19th century, when my order was founded, um, was not appropriate for girls in the early 1960s. Um, and the Vatican Council was meeting as I entered. Right. And they were going to change the religious life and demand that people brought some of these practices up to date, uh, jettison some of the older, uh, the older practices which had got stuck in a cultural limbo, as it were. And so we were trying, being asked to behave as though we were Victorian women, when in fact we we had moved on, um, and we there was nothing holy, particularly, for example, about always speaking in a very low voice, laughing in a restrained trill, <laughs> only taking a bath once once a week. Um, there's n- no, there's nothing sac- sacred about it, but because these things had congealed and become cast in stone, um, they had become sacralized in some way. So we had an awful lot of cultural lumber to deal with. Very hard for girls in the early sixties to behave. Like like uh, Victorian ladies. You know, and there's something that feels sad and almost tragic, you know, reading your accounts of that, because you did have a spiritual longing. I mean, you were young. It was undefined in many ways. But it, it seems almost like the structures of that religious life got completely in the way. Uh-uh. It could do. Now, I, um, I, I was also privileged uh, to meet with some nuns who had been able to work with these structures and mm-hmm. who'd done it. Uh, they were wise. They were benevolent. They were compassionate. They were even funny. They were mature, full human beings, and they were holy people. Um, but I knew that I wasn't going to be like that. I was going to be one of the f- sadly m- rather more common uh, variety of nun who was taking back little satisfactions here and there. I was much too young, really, I think, to make that kind of momentous choice. I was only 17 when I entered the convent. And I was basically yeah. a child. Um, and I had lots of inchoate yearnings and I was hoping for transfiguration. I was hoping for God to invade my life and that I would become sort of holy and wise and serene, a sort of Buddha, uh, (laughs) perhaps even a saint. uh, And it would all happen fairly quickly. And of course, it it didn't happen like that at all. So, um, so some, it's not that the structures infallibly kept people from God. There were some very holy nuns in there. um, And they became a kind of marker to me because when I realized that I wasn't, wasn't of that caliber, uh, then I realized I had to leave. And even though by the time you left, it, it, it almost sounds, as you tell the story, like there was no choice. Um, you know, you describe that leaving as a form of exile that entailed spiritual dislocation as well as physical dislocation. I lost my orientation uh, because being a nun in the, at that time was not like training to be a teacher or a broadcaster or, um, or a doctor where you learn a skill, mm. but your deepest self remains and personal life remains un, uh, in, intact and unaffected. Uh, the, the, this training was meant to be a conditioning, a conditioning that was designed to last a lifetime. And it is. It did. Uh, and when I left the convent, I did not know how to live without these structures. Um, I felt it, the whole um, tenor of my life um, had, had had changed. And 
with that, with this, and yet I was still the same. I was still basically a nun, but in secular clothes. Uh, and I needed to train myself to become a secular as rigorously as I had trained myself to become a nun. Uh, and but of course I didn't have much guidance with that. I think a few years later, when there was there had been many more people had left the religious life, they set up help uh, oh, centers right. and advisory and consultants because they realised that this was a trauma. Um, it was like somebody who's been in a sect, for example, and needs to be, as it were, debriefed mm. and uh, sort of helped back to ordinary world or uh, unconditioned, as it were, deconditioned. And I needed something like that. I'm sort um, of, uh, yeah. I'm sort of intrigued it, by that word you use, becoming a secular. It's in the book also. Uh, we always referred to people who were not nuns as seculars. Yeah. Um, people, and secular means world. They belong to the world. And we did not. Uh, we had we were encouraged to reject the world in a way at a very profound level, uh, not rejecting the people in it or anything of that sort, but rejecting the worldly ethos, which where, you know, you out to make money, self-gain, uh, self-establishment, self-advertisement, uh, pleasure, etc. All that we, 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 we were subverting and going towards a more spiritual interior life, as we thought. Um, and so uh, basically I'd been trained to reject this world mm -hmm. and then there I was in the middle of it, having to relate to it. And that was very hard. And I mean, even in that terminology it almost seems to make inevitable what happened, which is that when you left the religious order and became a secular, you were truly a secular person, that there was not a, very quickly no spiritual dimension really to your life in the world. Well, not, not only that, I'd been a complete flop at spirituality <laughs> in the convent. Felt, right? <laughs> I mean, I, had, I, I hadn't found it almost impossible to pray. And that was clearly a bit of a drawback for a nun. I, I, I used to go into meditation every single morning at six o'clock and we'd have to meditate for an hour and I could not do it. I could not keep my mind on my prayer for more than two minutes. My mind would go skittering off uh, or else be sunk in a sort of sloth of boredom and torpor and sleep because I was an adolescent and longing for sleep and getting up at bed at half past five was just <laughs> awful. Um, and uh, other people seemed to be getting on better than me. Um, and however hard I tried, I could not pray. And God remained utterly distant and elusive. The heavens remained closed. And I don't know quite what I thought should be happening. I knew I couldn't expect voices or visions because these were only for very special people and were often regarded as suspect indeed. But I expected some something or at least that I would myself be uh, caught up in my prayer. And we was, spent a great deal of time in silence. Uh, and the idea was that, you know, this silence would help you to focus solely on God. But my mind could not remain on God. I seemed allergic to God in <laughs> a sense. So that when I finally left the religious life, um, I tried to stay in the Catholic Church and did for a few years. Uh, but God eventually fell away. He, Even though I tried to make him the centre of my life, he'd remained impossibly distant. And um, he, he, he'd been, always been absent. 
So the next step was that really he didn't exist. He had never really existed for me, as I thought. Mm. So you, uh, you know, there's something about the the life of the mind in your story. Um, I mean, you talk about your mind skittering off, uh, but but really you found some salvation in, in your intellect, didn't you? Or a gift in that, although I don't know if you, did you recognize it as a gift early on? Well, in the convent, we didn't use it much, yeah. um, but, but we spent most of our time sewing and cleaning and scrubbing chores that I detest to this day um, and had rather hoped to enter a convent to avoid, unlike I didn't <laughs> want to be an endless housewife. Uh, but... Um, But when I got to Oxford University, then this was pure delight uh, to be able to read again. But there was something wrong. Um, And before I'd entered the religious life, I had been in love with literature and poetry. When I read a poem, my whole self would uh, jump out to greet it. You know, Mm. I was moved, touched within uh, and lifted above myself, just uh, wrapped up in it. But now when I came, I could do everything intellectually. Um, I could construct arguments. Uh, One of my friends said my essays were like Gothic cathedrals uh, with all kinds of ideas of various critics fitted neatly together into an intricate structure. But none of myself was going into it. Um, And I found it almost impossible to have a fresh idea, an original response or my own response to a poem, unless I found that somebody else had was there first to tell me what to do, some other critic or some other teacher to tell me what to think. Because for years, every time I'd had an idea of my own, I'd quashed it and stamped down on it uh, because we weren't supposed to have these ideas. And very often, my ideas were a bit subversive in the convent. You know, I've had doubts about the existence of God. I had doubts about the efficacy of prayer. I had doubts about the wisdom of the system, all of which I was had to uh, quash because the whole purpose of the training was that we would uh, eventually uh, see the sense of some of the, the, and the wisdom behind some of these customs and practices and beliefs when we became spiritually mature. But I, so I went around telling myself black was white and white was black. And I think basically I damaged my, my, my brain, hmm. uh, not neurologically, no, but, but that I I deflected it from its healthy bias towards uh, seeing things as they are. And so there was, just as in the convent, there had been a gaping hole at the centre of my spiritual life and my inability to pray or to think or relate to God. Uh, so in my intellectual life at Oxford, even though I could do it all with, with, with ideas and did very well along as uh, I could, there was the inner core of response was not present. And I was not having the kind of original ideas or fresh ideas or ideas that I'd thought of myself in the way that I'd been able to do once and that I could see that my fellow students could do. And, and that so went on for quite some time, didn't it? It was a long time, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it was so. It was about two or three years uh, before uh, it started to come back. Um, and the first, uh, the first moment when it came back, uh, actually, uh, was when I heard a lecturer reading. Um, 
T.S. Eliot's poem Ash Wednesday, yes, which you find you'll find pr- uh, at the beginning of Take my a book. Sort of a frame framing. Uh, it's the spine of the book. book. Yes, it's the spine of the book. That poem. It's meant a great deal to me on my journey. So it was uh, my I, as soon as Dame Helen Gardner, great. Uh, a great professor of Oxford in my day, started to read this poem in her wonderful way and started to explain it, to expound it. I felt that answering response because it seemed to be speaking directly to my condition. Um, And thereafter, intermittently, these I found myself being able to think again, to respond again, to slowly, slowly to have fresh ideas. But it did take a time. I think you have to be very careful about how you train young people to be faithful in religion. What does Mm. faith mean? Uh, I think it it must mean, as all the great masters tell you, see things as they really are. The Buddha said that. He was most emphatic about it. Never take other people's word for it. Never take second-hand ideas. Buddha used to tell his monks, if you don't like my teaching, all right, don't follow it. If it doesn't speak to you, if it doesn't work for you, we'll find something else. Uh, And so that and that is that 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 ability to see things as they are uh, is crucial. You cannot start your religious quest telling yourself that black was white uh, or, or things that are clearly not so are so or telling yourself you have no doubts about doctrines when you do have doctrines doubts. Uh, and uh, otherwise, you can uh, distort your, the quality of your thinking. And there is also something at the heart of a Buddhist thought was also seeing suffering and embracing suffering. And there's, you, you are very candid in, in your memoir, um, in your new book, about physical trauma that you had, which was eventually diagnosed as epilepsy, but went undiagnosed and I think misdiagnosed, um, <clears throat> maybe physical effects of oh this kind of dislocation you're describing, and it was sort of interesting to me when you, you the the chapter you took from uh, from Ash Wednesday that you entitled "Consequently I Rejoice." Um, you know, begins in some of your darkest times in that yes. period after you left the con- convent. But you, you tell me what that line evoked for you in that context. Well, um, I had this was this poem, as you say, came to me at one of the darker times of my life when I really thought I was losing my mind. Um, because apart from all my difficulties about leaving the convent. Um, I also had this undiagnosed illness, which actually comes from brain damage. I was slightly brain damaged probably at birth. There's a a lesion on my brain. Um, And so, you know, it needed physical uh, uh, treatment. And I was... It was assumed that it was purely psychosomatic, and I went to see psychiatrists, and nothing worked. And these, this illness is very frightening, mm-hmm. especially if you don't know where it is. You do, you'd go somewhere or do something, and you'd be unaware of what you were doing. Right, you're having um, blackouts and blackouts, um, or and uh, moments of crippling terror. Uh, crippling fear. Some people call it the death fear because it's very it's what some people have when they are, are approaching death because their their brain is in turmoil in um, in in neurologically, electrically in, in turmoil. Um, and so I was 
I really thought I was losing my mind that the um, that having rejected the world, I was now incapable of living in it, that I had damaged myself in the convent in some way, in some irreparable way that nobody could cure and that I would finish my life in a locked ward. Eventually, though, I gave up. I thought I said to myself, look, I'm not going to get help. I, I, I called for help in, in various ways and people kept telling me I was doing fine and uh, still the thing, uh, it was the, the diagnosis of epilepsy was still years in the future. Um, and I said, the thing I've got to do now is accept this malady and take it as something that is just going to be a part of my life and learn to roll with it as though I was on a terrifying roller coaster mm. ride and, and not fight against it anymore, not expect people to help me because they obviously couldn't help me. And the first line of T.S. Eliot's poem is because I do not hope to turn again, right. because I do not hope. And so... Where and and all being and it was just after I'd made this decision to stop expecting help that this poem came to me with such force, and I thought to myself, "Well, look, it's already starting to work. Uh, I have given up hope, and I'm beginning to get my feeling for poetry back." <laughs> um, and therefore, the 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 centre of that poem is when Eliot says, "Because I do not hope to turn again." Consequently, I rejoice, right. having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And it seemed to me that now my project was, if I couldn't get joy spontaneously anymore, I was going to have to construct my, uh, my well-being um, and my life and even try to manufacture joy as carefully as an engineer will put together an aeroplane or a piece of intricate technology. This was to be my project. Uh, and T. Uh, Wordsworth, too, in his great ode on the intimations of immortality, regrets the passing of the joy that, uh, that he had so easily and spontaneously as a young man. Um, and he says, you know, all right, that, that's gone, but we will grieve not, rather find strength in what remains behind. Here, take what you've got and work with that. Don't go hankering for uh, things that you can't have. At that time, I thought I couldn't have health. Um, I couldn't have uh, whole uh, mental integrity and wholeness. Therefore, I had to work with what I'd got, which was still a great deal. After all, I was studying at one of the best universities in the world. Right. I, I, I was immensely privileged compared to the vast numbers of people on this planet. So to go with what I'd got and try and construct uh, a viable lifestyle out of that, giving up hope of some some salvation coming at me from without outside myself. It's it's really a moment of surrender, isn't it? Um, yes, yes, it it is a moment of surrender, and that that image of the roller coaster is quite a good one. When you're on it, there's nothing you can do. You've just got to go with it, and give up fighting and moaning and groaning about your about your, your maladies or deformities or and yes, and it was a moment of surrender where you almost throw up your hands uh, and say, "All right, I I I, I give in. Uh, this is this is it," and things did take a turn for the better. After that, it, it, they really did. But I, 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 you know, you're very clear, and you repeat this many times that that at this point, I think you 
well and truly did not consider yourself to be a religious person at all, that God mm. was no longer part of, of your equation. Yes, I, I, I had... I struggled on with the Catholic Church for a while, but when and and I for a while I used to go to mass at the uh, Dominican uh, monastery in Oxford called Blackfriars, and the Dominicans were very intelligent men, and they kept me in the church I think for longer than I would have been otherwise. When I moved to London, that was the end of it. I mean, I, I just never went near a church again. I felt exhausted by the whole religious enterprise. I wanted nothing to do with it. God, I would describe myself as atheist. Uh, I felt not anger, but just simple exhaustion from the whole thing. If I saw somebody reading a religious book on a train or something, I'd wince to myself. Uh, <laughs> think, oh, fancy, you know, giving your mind to this stuff. And of course, in in London, um, in England, that is that was the mainstream view. Right. So for once, uh, England is a very, very secular country mm-hmm. and militantly secular, in fact. And so for once in my life, I was mainstream. That's right. Um, You'd become part actually, of that world. <laughs> I'd become completely in the flow of things. I was fashionable. Um, <laughs> and, um, and people were longing to hear funny tales of the convent, you know. Um, mm. And I would tell them. And, um, and they, they would look at me with astonishment and say, how did you put up with that rubbish? for all that time. Thank goodness you're out of there. And I would often say to myself, since I gave up God and religion, I've been so much happier. Um, and, And that, I thought, was that. Well, and then it is fascinating that as you began to approach religion again, as really an as a subject that was part of your career, um, you started to do some television work, and and in mm. fact, you were setting out on this series with the goal of of debunking religion. Is that fair? Yes, no, absolutely. <laughs> I um, you see, I got it. people say, well, how did you get into television? Well, a series of utter career disasters, and I think this is important too, because everything I turned my hand to uh, failed. Uh, for all these years. I mean, I failed my PhD, so I couldn't be an English literature professor. Um, My health was so bad, even after the epilepsy was diagnosed, that I lost my school teaching job. Um, And then I'd written my first book by that time, my my memoir, first memoir, Through the Narrow Gate, because I was slightly uneasy about the whole of these convent years just becoming a fund of funny stories to tell at dinner parties. And I wanted to recover that time. And because people had seen me publicising this book, they offered me work in television after my teaching career had collapsed. And uh, this was a new television channel opening up. The commissioning editor of a religion was a passionate atheist who loathed religion. And he said he wanted to discuss religion as if, with the same rigour as every other subject. Was, Which was is to tear it apart. <laughs> was to tear it apart. He, yeah. uh, as beside, I was a major weapon in his, religious, in his anti-religious arsenal. But he, was also, he also commissioned a... Uh, a very controversial series called Jesus the Evidence, which was actually at the beginning of the series going to actually blow up a life-size statue of Jesus, you know, as <sighs> this was going to be the end of the whole thing. And um, I felt, it wasn't just that I was being cynical, I felt that I was a woman with a mission, that people should see the harm that religion had done over the years. Uh, people should be liberated from feeling that they should believe impossible doctrines. And that I would show them that uh, uh, you know, this was this was 
bonkers. Uh, and the <laughs> word bonkers came from the John, the commissioning editor for religion, who would look at uh, these various pious uh, programmes on the other channels and says, all oh, this religion is simply bonkers, darling. It's <laughs> nonsense. And But much to my astonishment, people started writing to me after my first uh, series on St. Paul and saying now they felt they could go back to church having right. listened. And I thought, well, how? I <laughs> mean, I ch- haven't, what did I do wrong? I mean, haven't I conclusively shown that, in fact, some, you know, these, the, the, the tenets of Christianity are not true, that Paul, not Jesus, was the first Christian. But, but, um, but you also found yourself to be very drawn to the person yes. of Paul. And weren't you surprised yourself at, at yes. what you discovered there? Yes, because I, when I was offered this job, and I thought, right now, here's my chance to get at St. Paul, because I held him responsible for so much of what had gone wrong in Christianity. I Including women keeping their heads women, covered in church. And, right. Women, exactly. Um, and also, uh, you know, he perverted the loving doctrine of Jesus and made it all into something intellectual and mystical and doctrinal mm-hmm. and harsh. And found, of course, when I started to look into the actual evidence, um, and I had a a very fine uh, New Testament scholar as a consultant who was very tough with me, and I needed him to be tough with me because I didn't know much at that stage. And I found that this, this just the evidence didn't match up to that. A lot of the epistles that are attributed to St. Paul in the New Testament are not written by him at all. Right, and some they of them were, don't even claim to be it, when you actually yes. read the text. It's interesting, exactly. isn't it? They, they're just lumped together with yeah. St. Paul. And some of the most misogynist, anti-female uh, uh, sayings are not, in the, are not written by St. Paul at all. Mm-hmm. Um, he was a much more egalitarian. And I... You see, it was a, a program that fo- I had to follow in his footsteps more yeah. or less. We went round and I was standing in places where he'd stood. I became very close to him because there's a great passion about those writings. Uh, he was a genius uh, and geniuses are not always easy people or even very pleasant people. But there was a huge vulnerability about him. Um, in the second letter to the Corinthians where he's pleading with the Corinthians and saying, you know, why don't you like me, basically? What have I done wrong? And how he yeah. says, what a bad speaker he is. Uh, that's always astonished me. And I always assumed he was a very good orator. You know I don't speak well. You know I'm not physically, um, you know, impressive like some of the others. And a, a real creed occur, but also the genius of the man because he did take this sorrowful tale of Jesus and make it... Make brought it, uh, the whole richness of the monotheistic tradition into the Gentile world, uh, able to package it brilliantly for the Gentile world. And so uh, even though he was Jewish, Jesus was Jewish, they really, uh, he he was able to make that uh, teaching of Israel accessible to Gentiles. And, And he was Doing, creating this entirely new religion, absolutely on the run, um, <laughs> uh, sort of constantly on on the road, travelling in prison, because uh, he was a pugnacious man and always sort of in trouble, one way and another. And he was a genius. I found I found myself much against my will and much to my surprise, immensely moved by him. And maybe some of that came out in the series. Uh, and tell, say some more about how your impression of 
his role um, in relationship to Jesus' role in beginning the church change? I think it's interesting the way you phrase that. Well, uh, Jesus, as far as we know, had no intention of founding a new religion. Um, And he was Jewish and... Um, even says in the Gospels he's come only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Paul had never met Jesus. Um, he's, and uh, he, he, what he had was vision. He had mm-hmm. a, some kind of vision of the risen Jesus that said that this was to go to the Gentiles. On the road um, to Damascus. Well, that's the, that's the story. Yeah. Paul him, that, that's a later story in the Acts of the Apostles. Paul himself simply calls it an apocalypse, a revelation, okay. uh, a sort of a, perhaps an intense visionary moment. Um, and so Paul based, himself doesn't refer to Damascus, is that? No, he I doesn't. Didn't know that's that. in the oh, no, so that's in, in his, the okay. That's in the Acts of the Apostles, uh-huh. written not by Saint not Paul. By him. Uh, but by probably by one of his followers. Oh, okay. Um, some, it was years probably after his death. Okay. Um, and he himself talks about his own career in, in, in the Epistle to the Galatians, uh, where he refers to this moment of revelation, but that's all he says about it. Mm. Um, and the, uh, he, basically what he did was to make Jesus into a myth. And that I mean that in the most reverential sense. We've lost the sense of myth in our modern scientific world. We think a myth is something that didn't happen. But um, a myth is a timeless truth. A myth, uh, strictly speaking, is something that happened in, in some sense once, but which also happens all the time. Yes. And Paul uh, brought the sad tale of Jesus dying a disgraceful death on a cross and brought it into the life of ordinary uh, Christians by means of the rituals of baptism, uh, by means of the breaking of the bread. Uh, and um, and it was, in fact, uh, the Gospels were all written by people who in one way or another had converted to St. Paul's version of Christianity, the meaning of St. Paul's version. His are the earliest uh, Christian writings that we possess. And this was all new to you? you it just, was completely yeah. new. I mean, I had, we'd done a little ladylike theology in the convent, but we'd <laughs> left out the really challenging stuff. And this whole idea that Paul was, the, in some sense, the founder of Christianity, inspired by Jesus, passionately in love with, with a Jesus whom he'd never met, but bringing uh, the whole uh, richness of the Jewish tradition, especially its teaching on compassion and love. Paul's epistles, the ones he actually wrote, are overflowing with affection for people. Um, And, of course, it is Paul who says, you know, that you can have faith that moves mountains, you can give your body to be burnt as a martyr, words that have terrible resonance with us these days, of course. But if you lack charity... It's worth nothing at all. And here he's in line with all the great uh, major teaching teachers, whether it's Confucius or Buddha or the Upanishads or the prophets of Israel, that what makes religion uh, and what brings you into the divine presence is not uh, are not spiritual gifts, not martyrdom, but the practice of charity, compassion and kindness to all. Now... Wasn't it in retracing uh, Paul's journey that you went to the Holy Land for the first time? Yes, I was working with an Israeli film crew. um, And um, it was a very funny project because we had absolutely no money. We made it for $100,000, the whole thing, six parts. 
and uh, but it was wonderful fun. Uh, but it, very important things here for the first time I encountered Judaism. Yes, and and Islam. Now I had I was ashamed to find that I through my uh, religious life had been entirely Christian, and now it seemed terrible that I had merely thought of Judaism as a kind of prelude to Christianity, later discredited. And I'd never given Islam a thought. But when you're in Jerusalem, where you see these faiths uh, jostling often uneasily at the same sacred sites, you become aware of the profound connections between them. And, and from... Where, when are we talking? Where, is this the... 1982, 83. And I will say that reading your book, I mean, you are now... I know that you, you call yourself an untrained or self-trained theologian, but you are yes. considered to be one of the world's great experts on these religions. But when you went there, you really knew nothing. No thing. And you were very up for straightforward about that. Yes. No, no, I was learning on the job. I mean, and yeah. I have learned, I, I was, uh, that's how I, I'm, I'm entirely self-taught. I think that gives you a bit of an advantage because, in one way. I'm an amateur and an amateur, the word literally means one who loves. Hmm. Um, and um, I haven't done, because I haven't imbibed the, the the correct jargon or anything. I and I've I know because of my own difficulties and struggles without a teacher really uh, how difficult some of these ideas are to it. it I can probably uh, share that this with people who read my books a bit more and help them to see how I got into things. Yeah, but I I didn't know anything about uh, at all, and there was a wonderful moment when I, I actually went and asked for some help from a, a Jewish scholar at a college where I later, much to my astonishment, found myself a teacher yeah. for some years. Um, and he explained to me, for example, the revolu- to me revolutionary idea that religion was not about belief, about believing things. He was telling me the story of Rabbi Hillel, the older contemporary of Jesus, who'd been approached by a bunch of pagans who said they would convert to Judaism if Hillel could recite the entire Torah while he stood on one leg. And Hillel stood on one leg and said, do not do unto others what you would not have done unto you. That is the Torah. The rest is commentary. Go and learn it. And I said, well, that's all very nice, but I mean, what were these Gentiles supposed to believe? Mm-hmm. And uh, Hayam said, well, it's easy to see you were brought up Christian. They said, we Jews, we, it really doesn't matter what you believe. Religion is about doing things. Uh, it's about, say, living, as Hillel says, in a compassionate way that changes you. Mm-hmm. And the more I started going into all this, the more I saw that uh, certainly that was true of Judaism, certainly it was true of Islam, which, whose cardinal practices are not a whole list of beliefs to which you have to subscribe, but rather a... Um, a um, you have to fast during Ramadan, you have to go on pilgrimage, you have to pray facing Mecca uh, several times a day, uh, otherwise orienting yourself, teaching your body in the prostration of prayer, the humility and surrender that is required of the act of Islam or or submission to God. Um, You you give alms. These, these, These practices that are designed incrementally over the years to change your inner in a world. Now, this was completely revolutionary to me in one way, but I could also see that this was rather like uh, the training we had in the convent where every one of these practices during the day was seen as an in- a pos- 
possibility for an encounter with God. Right. Um, and and if you look at the Gospels, in fact, there's very little about doctrines as we later know it. I mean, Jesus does not go around discoursing about original sin or the Trinity or the fact that he's the Son of God incarnate, third person, second person of the Trinity. <coughs> no, or he's who the Holy eating Ghost is. with sinners, isn't he? He and healing going, people. <laughs> he is going out to people who are regarded as uh, beyond beneath contempt mm-hmm. or as, as traitors to their country or as irreligious people or sinners. Uh, he sees all and, and saying that everybody is welcome um, and uh, and uh, telling people that they've got he's, he's a, he himself, like Paul, is a bit pugnacious as far as we can see, too. Um, but definitely he had that, you know, that again, it's about doing things, healing, uh, helping. Um, rather than expounding a lot of doctrines. Tell, change your life, change your behavior. Um, well, and as and you pointed out, I mean, I think it's easy to forget in this country, he, Jesus was Jewish yes. <laughs> from the tradition you had just discovered that, that, that valued practice over ideas. I know. And of course, once you start looking at uh, the gospel sayings alongside the sayings of Jesus, uh, of the, in the Talmud of the early rabbis, you see Jesus uh, as very deeply embedded in the Jewish world. Um, you know, he himself teaches a version of Hillel's golden rule. Uh, but he says, do unto others as you would have done unto you. Um, and many of his sayings resonate with the sayings of the rabbi of the great rabbis of this time, or in, in, that you'll find in the Talmud. So he he was very much involved in that world, and I and of course we 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 miss Jesus. Uh, we don't get the point of Jesus unless we really appreciate our profound roots. This was a religion that had uh, that went in three ways. Uh, right. It, it, and I think I'm just as as we're speaking. I mean, you you have come to be someone who has that large perspective of the three monotheistic traditions, and 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 really, it's occurring to me. I mean, you discovered them together, also. Yes, I did. Which and made from fact, the beginning, yeah. And in fact, it was my because I did other religious programs too, where I had to, like you, interview people, religious people. Um, and that meant I had to hastily find out about what they were supposed to be believing and doing and thinking and what, what Sufism was, what yeah. what Islam was, what Buddhism was, and putting myself through a bit of a crash course in that. And it was actually the study of these other traditions, uh, the study of Judaism, the study of Islam, the uh, tremendously rich traditions with its immense complex and inspiring mysticism, for example, mm. And, um, and and also Greek and Orthodox, uh, Greek Russian Orthodox Christianity. I mean that in, it's very different from our Western forms of Christianity, and much more mystical, and actually mm. much closer to religions such as Buddhism uh, than than we are in the West. And so all this was actually teaching me that there were many things in religion that I just hadn't uh, taken on board in my convent years, in my early years, and that I could really relate to. But also, it wasn't that I wanted to convert to any of these faiths particularly, but it also helped me to see my own differently, my mm. own tradition, uh, where I'd started from differently. And I could see what my, what my own Catholic tradition had been trying to do at its best once you saw it in the context of these other faiths and saw, ultimately, the profound similarities between them. 
that, you know, working in uh, isolation from one another often and often in a spirit of deadly hostility with mm. one another, still Jews, Christians and Muslims had continually over the centuries asked many of the same questions about God, spirituality, prayer, uh, ethics and come up with remarkably similar solutions so that this tells you something about what kind of human beings we are, what, what we are as humans, mm. how we behave when we're confronted with the absolute and what brings us into enlightenment. Mm. I'd like to talk some more about, about your discovery of Islam. I, I think, again, mm. in the beginning, you, you weren't even aware that Islam, that Muslims take their spiritual lineage from Abraham. Is that right? No, I mean... You were very new to this. I was exactly. I, you see, I knew I was absolutely ignorant. I knew nothing, yeah. and I was taken up to the uh, temple. The te- what the Jews call the Temple Mount, which the Muslims call the most noble sanctuary, the Haram al Sharif. And there I was shown the Dome of the Rock, that with a great golden dome, which has a big rock in the middle of it. Uh, from, and on this rock, I was told Abraham is thought to have sacrificed his son. And I realized that Abraham is a great prophet. And, and, I, and it, was, uh, it had to be explained to me that not only Abraham, but Moses, Jesus, Adam are, are all uh, revered as great prophets in Islam, that you cannot be a Muslim and deny the truth or taught by Jesus and Moses and Abraham. Um, that your your Islamic spirit must include an appreciation of these other traditions. Astonishing to me uh, that this this was so. And then I found later in the Sufi tradition uh, that uh, it was quite common for a Sufi mystic, uh, the Sufis being the mystics of Islam, to cry in ecstasy that, uh, that he's, he's no longer a Jew, a Christian or a Muslim. He's at home equally in a synagogue, a mosque, a temple or a church because when one has touched the divine, one can leave these man-made distinctions behind. Mm. I mean, all this was wonderful to me. <laughs> um, and uh, I, I, it was... Um, I, I was just inspired by it. But instead of seeing other traditions as, at best, you know, um, a mistake, um, but to see them as positively and as enriching, that gave me a blueprint, as it were, for delving into these uh, other traditions and and drawing what nourishment I could from them. it, It sounds like also when you then took up to write a life of the Prophet Muhammad, somewhat similarly to your experience with Paul, you, you really had sort of a love affair with this person. You you loved him and wrote, and what was it one Pakistani scholar said to you, your book is a love story. Yes, he said it's a love story. He also went on to say that if I had known the Prophet, I would have consented to become his 15th wife. Uh, I'm not sure that I, that's actually the case. but yeah. uh, but tell me, tell me about that. What did you come to love in the Prophet Muhammad? Um, the fact that he's extremely human. Uh, we know more about him than we know about almost the founder of almost any other major tradition um, because he's so much later. Uh, than Jesus, say. Uh, and so there's more information, more documentation. And his, his first biographers are really trying to write 
history. Uh, not It's not history as we know it in the 21st century, but it certainly uh, presents the prophet warts and all. It doesn't attempt mm. to whitewash him. Um, it shows him sometimes having awful trouble with his wives, who were not in, <laughs> entirely an unmixed blessing. People often assumed that Muhammad had a wonderful harem and was basking decadently in a garden of sensual delights. Not from it, far from it. I mean, the wives were often a headache um, and um, and undertaken for political reasons. and um, But also, you see him struggling. He was living in a violent and desperate, brutal society. And he managed to bring peace to that world. Uh, by not not by force, but actually, uh, he for five or six years he and the Muslims were fighting a war against Mecca, which was the Meccans were going to exterminate the little Muslim community. They were Muslims were fighting for their lives, but he won not by violence, but by eschewing violence, and for two years practicing a campaign of non-violence that's not dissimilar to that practiced by Gandhi or uh, other uh, other. Uh, inspiring uh, peaceable rulers and you see his vulnerability you you don't often see Jesus laughing in the Gospels in fact I think you almost never do you often see Muhammad playing with his grandchildren putting uh, little Hassan and Hussein on his shoulders and running round with them um, weeping over his um, a uh, death of a friend, comforting his daughters. Uh, and you, like Paul, you sense the vulnerability of the man, mm. striving and sweating literally with the effort uh, as he uttered the words, beautiful words of the Quran, uh, and, uh, that because the Quran doesn't come out well in translation, but the Arabic, um, I'm told, is just of surpassing beauty. Yes. Um, and, and Muslims that, respond to that beauty at a spiritual level that I... I think it's, it's not accessible to the rest of us. It's part no. of their experience. And I was talking to a Muslim scholar only the other night who was saying, who was asked, "What would be the essence of Islam if you could?" And he said, "Oh, the Quran. Uh, that without the chant, mm-hmm. without the beauty of that scripture, which is a sonoral, res- uh, it 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 is something that is heard and listened to. The word Quran means recitation. So it's not something you sit and read to yourself silently. It's something you listen to." Uh, and with its beauty, uh, Muhammad was one of the great uh, a prophet, but also a poet uh, and, mm. and a statesman. And all this was a, was was sort of wonderful to me. I I, I felt close to him, inspired by him, um, and I you know since in recent. Y- Years, of course, with the horrors that have been perpetrated in the name of the tradition that he founded, uh, he would have been so shocked, appalled um, and devastated to see what has been done. Mm. And, you know, you say that I I think um, you have a gift for connecting with people of ideas uh, over time. You know, I remember when you talk about discovering Tennyson, you say he was closer to me than many of my contempor- my living contemporaries. And I, I feel like you re- achieve that kind of connection with St. Paul and with Muhammad. So when you make that kind of observation about Muhammad, I, you know, I want to listen to it. 
Well, I early on had a great gift uh, in that discover I was reading a, a very scholarly and wonderful book about Islam in three volumes, and I lit upon a footnote that explained in very dry academic language what a religious historian was supposed to do. Uh, he, he, I think they assumed it would be a he rather than a she, right. was supposed to practice what was called the science of compassion. Now, science is, is used here in the sense of sciencia, knowledge. So you had, it was a knowledge acquired by compassion. And compassion, of course, doesn't mean feeling sorry for people, pitying people. Compassion, compathain, it means to, uh, to feel with. And the, this, in this little footnote, uh, he said, uh, the, the author said that you must not leave a, an, a, the discussion of a religious idea or a theology or a personality such as Muhammad uh, and, and look without uh, being able to find out what lay at the root of this, not to dismiss these ideas out of hand with, from the superior viewpoint of post-Enlightenment Western rationalism. Right. But to divest yourself of that, uh, of that rationalistic outlook and enter the minds of these mystics and sages and poets and not to le- keep on asking, but why, but why, and, try- and filling out with scholarly knowledge the background until you come to the point where you can imagine yourself feeling the same or believing the same as them. Until you, until basically the intellectual idea learns to reverberate with you personally, and that I immediately took as my watchword. So that uh, because religion is not about a list of doctrines or a list of practices, you can't study a religion like Islam simply by learning off the five pillars of Islam right. and the date of the Prophet and uh, the major forms of you know what are the differences between the Sunnis and the Shiites. The thing will remain opaque to you until you learn to feel the what all these doctrines mean. The same with Christianity, the same with Judaism, the same with Buddhism. Um, and that's been, that was the sort of, uh, I, I, I copied out this um, this footnote and put it on the notice board that at that time was behind my desk and tried to read it every day and uh, remind myself that that's what I'm trying to do. You know, it occurs to me that this question, but why, but why, but why, is which you ended up posing as your method as a theologian is is the question you couldn't ask in the convent those years ago. Yes, uh, that, that, that was the case. Yeah. Um, and we were also not, also feeling was rather discouraged in those days because it, you know, it was, uh, it, we weren't supposed to form friendships and uh, I was always being told I was too sensitive and too emotional. I was, I, I wept throughout my religious life like a broken water spout. Um, I, I was sort of... In a state of great tension, I think, and uh, and worry and anxiety, um, as many of us were, and I cried a great deal. And I was told I had to pull myself together. Fair enough, <laughs> but that didn't mean that uh, strong feeling was therefore uh, should therefore have been eschewed. I mean, I think. I had to educate myself emotionally because emotionally I was rather retarded. And I did that mainly by means of literature, by learning to to feel with people like Tennyson um, and later learning to feel with St. Paul, feel with Muhammad, with Jesus and later with the Buddha.
And I think your own passion for these ideas uh, and for learning about them, for asking the questions about them, connects seem, seems to connect with the passion that these figures had and brought into the world. Well, I think you miss the essence of these people if you imagine them just sitting, uttering a list of doctrines. And our theology, I think, should be like poetry, like the work, like yes, the Quran. Yes, you say that. That's such a lovely thought. Say some more about that. Well, um, you see, I think theology is poetry. That's what my Jewish friends, Chaim Maccabee, told me all those years ago when he quoted Hillel's Golden Rule to me and said, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe. Theology is poetry. Now, a poet spends a great deal of time listening to his unconscious and slowly hauling up a poem word by word, phrase by phrase, until something beautiful is brought forth, we hope, into Mm. the world that changes people's perceptions. And we respond to a poem emotionally. Um, And I think we should take as great a care when we write our theology as we would if we were writing such a poem, instead of just trotting out an orthodox formula or an orthodox definition of God or, or a catechism answer, or just to, it, we should be uh, so that when people listen to a theological idea, they feel touch, as touched as when they read a, a great poem by, say, Milton or Dante. Um, and uh, and we should take as great care with our religious rituals as if we were putting on a great performance at a theatre. Hmm. Uh, and because the, the ritual and theatre, indeed, was originally a religious ritual uh, designed to g- lead us to transcendence instead of just mechanically going through the motions of our various rites and ceremonies, uh, trying to make them into something absolutely beautiful and inspiring. Because I do see religion as a kind of art form. Hmm. There's a wonderful moment when uh, one of my favourite Greek Orthodox theologians, a man called Gregory of Nyssa, who was uh, 4th century, wonderful mystic. Uh, And he and his brother and friend uh, were the people who formulated the Eastern Orthodox doctrine of Trinity. And he said... Uh, he said, first of all, this, this, this doctrine could only be understood in a ritual context and in the context of prayer and contemplation. It's not something like an equation that you can just follow uh, rationally. It makes sense only in a context of ritual and prayer, like any great religious idea. But he said, when he thinks, when he, I think of the three, he said, I think of the one. When I think of the one, I think of the three. And then I, my eyes fill with tears and I lose all sense of where I am. Mm. And that's what a theology, theological formulation of the Trinity should do to us. Um, and so often our theological formulations don't do that to us. They remain opaque and a bit soulless. And we're, uh, but, but I think we should be a bit more creative and inventive with our theology. It, yeah, it, it feels important to me also that, you know, in our time, especially since September 11th, people are often wondering aloud, what, how can the three monotheistic traditions in particular, or, or all religions, I mean, we can look around the world and see religions seeming to be at the root of violence and conflict and trouble. And when people ask, what do the religions have in common, they often look to see what ideas religions have in common Mm. or what doctrines. But where you end up with all of your study of the many religions, and you've also written a life of Buddha, 
you end up with the litmus test of compassion. So this mm. action rather than this idea. Yes, yes. <laughs> that these and uh, these are uh, that r- the religions are forms of ethical alchemy, if you like. That you behave in a compassionate way, and this changes you. Why? Because all the great masters of religion tell us uh, that. What keeps us from a knowledge of the divine, from which has been called variously God, Buddha, Nirvana, God, Nirvana, Brahman, the sacred? Uh, what keeps us from this ultimate reality is our own egotism, our greed, that uh, that often needs to destroy others in order to preserve its sense of self or, or even just to denigrate others. And we now, see if, that also happening in the name of religion. We do. If mm-hmm. I could just, I'll just yeah. finish. We'll come yeah. back to that in yeah. a minute okay. because that's important. Okay. Um, but let's just stick with this. It, what compassion does and, uh, is to make it, it makes us dethrone ourselves from the center of our world and put another there. And it's this that uh, all they all teach leads us into a, the presence of the divine, gives us an apprehension of the divine, not believing in creeds, right. um, not undertaking weird penances, uh, but it, it is this doctrine of compassion. Buddha said that the practice of compassion can introduce you to nirvana. Uh, Jesus said that on the last day, uh, you know, it, it's those who have been sick who visited people who are sick, uh, naked, hungry and in prison, have looked after them, who will enter the kingdom of God, who come into the divine presence. Not those who have the correct theology uh, or the right eth- sexual ethics, for example. And so um, I think that is the test, the, 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 that compassion is the key. And they've found, they've all come to this conclusion, not because compassion sounds good, it sounds nice, but because it works, that we are at our most creative when we give, we are ready to give ourselves away. And we're at our most sterile and dangerous when we seek to, Im- to have ourselves and more so and to uh, use uh, re- religion, indeed, to enhance our sense of ego. Right. Um, and this is the danger, because a lot of times I say this to religious people, and they often look rather mutinous and balked, because what's the fun of being religious if you can't uh, complain about other people or denigrate other people, hate other people, or even, in, in its worst possible formulation, kill other people? Um, One of the things I've been finding recently in my studies is that every single one of these major traditions that have continued to nourish humanity uh, all began in extremely violent societies. Hmm. Um, They all uh, came to birth in uh, um, times like our own, which are filled with violence and when society seemed to be crumbling. And all of them uh, took a position against violence. At their root, tried mm-hmm. to find the, uh, the, 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 what lay at the core uh, of, of this, which is largely egotism, fear, greed, um, uh, and to, ha- hatred. And, and hatred is a form of ego. Um, and, and, and to relate deeply to this and the, to the, the extent they, they, they were deep and profound, these religious traditions, to the extent that they eschewed violence. 
However, a lot of people come into religion and they don't want to lose their egos, frankly. They, they, they're quite happy with well, themselves. Well, it's a hard thing for human beings. to. It's very hard. <laughs> it's unpopular. And when the Buddha, for example, was wondering whether he should teach uh, his, his message after enlightenment, he said, no, uh, it's going to be too upsetting and disappointing because people really don't want to lose their egos. Mm. Um, and they're not going to therefore understand what I'm saying to them. And also because these uh, there were these religions were all operating in times of great violence. Uh, that that's that that violence in the surrounding world sometimes seeps into the scripture. Uh, so in uh. we ha- we have it in our our Bible, for example. On one page, God is telling us not to kill, and then on a few pages later, we find him telling to him to. God telling the people of Israel to wipe out all the inhabitants of Canaan. Jesus in the New Testament tells his followers to turn the other cheek, not to attack uh, and to forgive and love. And then return to the book of Revelation where Jesus is leading armies and destroying the enemies of God in battle with great gusto. Same with the Quran. Uh, there, there, there are moments when Muhammad is the general telling, you know, that you've got to fight hard. You've got to fight the enemy wherever you find them, as any general has to do. A general, they, uh, but then all saying, no, no, you've got. But ultimately, forgiveness is better. Ultimately, if the if the enemy seeks peace, you've got to lay down your arms immediately. So that, so there's always that violent element is in all our scriptures. Uh, it's in all our traditions. Um, and what happens when we look around the world in many of these conflicts, it's not that religion has sparked these traditions. It's rather that uh, violence has become endemic in a region and religion has got sucked into that right. vortex of, of, of violence. The Arab-Israeli conflict began on both sides as a, a secular conflict about a land, a uh, typically secular conflict, Zionism was originally a a secular movement, a secular revolution against uh, religious Judaism. And the PLO was essentially secular uh, liberation uh, uh, ideology. Uh, But then the thing festers on and religion has sadly and horribly got sucked in. We're seeing the same in the violent world of Iraq today, Mm. a country that has been brutalized. We see it in Afghanistan, which has been a theater of war for decades and where violence is king. War, after all, and violence affects everything that we do. If we're engulfed in a war, it affects our dreams, it affects our fears, it affects our personal relationships, it affects our art, and so it's going to affect our religion too. And I think I think uh, that you'll find that that's been the pattern with most of the religious violence of our time. And the lesson is: let's settle disputes while we can, while they're still secular and therefore capable of a pragmatic solution, before they fester, become sacralized, and therefore the issues have become uh, become absolute. Because we can use, say, God horribly simply to endorse our own fears and loathings and hatred and make God into a sort of slogan and basically into an idol whom we've created in our own image, uh, just endorsing our side and, and, and seeing everybody else as evil. And then you get horrors like September the 11th. You get the atrocities of the of the group centuries ago of the Crusades. Right. Uh, and uh, you ha- because people are not disciplined, 
disciplined enough in realising that God is not just a bigger and better version of ourselves, writ large, with our likes and dislikes, but some a reality that is entirely different. I think that this core virtue of compassion that you describe, that you find in in religious traditions, and I think, you know, let's be honest, the violence makes headlines, but many, many mm. people live with this virtue or struggle to live with this virtue as they live out their religious lives. Um, it's especially tested in our time in, in an interesting way, I think, uh, by the clash between people with, within religions, between mm. people who are more fundamentalist, who we associate with um, using violence uh, in the name of religion, co-opting religion to that end, um, and those who who feel that their religion has been co-opted and taken away. It's hard to apply that virtue of compassion to people who seem to be abusing their religion. I mean, where do you see mm. this virtue of compassion playing into this very real dynamic of how religion I... gets divided? Yeah. I think we've all got to make uh, an, an individual decision. Uh, you know, all those of us who, who are religious in one way and another, we don't have to wait for a leader or a prophet to come along uh, to look at our scriptures and reclaim them from uh, the bigotry or the ignorance that has taken root in so many uh, and, 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 and insecurity uh, and reclaim the compassionate ethos which lies at their very root. Um, and there are so many religious issues, not just religious terrorism. We're looking, at, say, at child abuse in the, in the, in, you know, in the Catholic Church. We're looking at, as you say, the clash between uh, the, the liberals and sec, uh, and uh, liberals and and fundamentalists, in, which is a divide in every tradition. First of all. I think we so Christians for example have got to take Jesus seriously when he says love your enemies. Are these are the one, some of the few oh, words Oh don't be that, ridiculous. <laughs> are we Yeah. What do you I, mean? No, I mean it, you're, I know what you're saying it's so straightforward but it's a very hard very hard command. Of course command it's hard. <laughs> of course it's hard. Yeah. But it what it means is what it means is not that we've got to be filled with soggy compassion for Osama bin Laden. <laughs> Uh, but that we've got to wish people well in situations where there is no hope of return, where we've got to extend our benevolence to places where we know uh, we will not get a return. And it's hard. But in that, I am convinced we'll come to apprehensions of the divine if we make that effort. Because if we do what Hillel says, he was right. He It was such a profound statement. Do not do to others as you would not have done to you. Um, if we do, if we live by that day by day, hour by hour, minute by minute, and it's no good going straight on to Osama bin Laden or Saddam Hussein and all the rest of it, where there are people in our own immediate entourage who we find difficult to get on with. <laughs> uh, the Buddha always said you have to radiate compassion to all four corners of the world, but you've got to deal first with the people who are right up there around you. Uh, you know that difficult sibling, uh, that um, that that annoying colleague, that rival, uh, your ex-wife or whatever, um, until you can be f extend benevolence, you wish them well, uh, you re uh, 
then this starts to break down the hard shell of ego. If you said every time you attempted to say something horrible about one of these uh, enemies, one of these uh, annoying colleagues, siblings, etc., or a country with whom we're at war, how would I like this said about me or mine? And in that moment, refrained. In that moment, you, we would have achieved a transcendence of ego. And, a, and that would be a religious life. I think uh, that, this, the, as Hillel was right to say, that's the essence of religion. That's the Torah. The rest is commentary. Mm-hmm. Uh, Confucius uttered a, a version of this golden rule 500 years before that. As we see, Jesus taught it. Buddha taught a version of it. Because that we don't have time then anymore to worry about the existence of God or uh, because then I'm convinced we get intimations of the divine. If we lay aside that frightened ego and try and extend our benevolence, try and see things from other people's point of view, look into our hearts and find what it is that pains us and then make sure we don't inflict such pain on other people, whoever they are. That's a discipline for life. I wonder if you would tell a story that you told when you and I were on a panel together several months ago. It, it, it was a simple story, but I haven't been able to stop thinking about it. You you described being on another, in part of another discussion, and a fundamentalist Christian, I believe, mm. beginning to rant and rave. Do you remember this? Yes. Uh, we were, uh, I was at Port in, in um Oregon State University, and it was a it was a, a, a conference called God at Two Thousand, and it was a wonderful conference. We had lectures from Jews, um, rabbi, a Muslim scholar. Um, there was freelance monotheist me. There was Diana Eck, who's an Indologist, but is also a devout Christian. And, and we were all asked to say what we had learned about God. And it was wonderful. People were asking profound questions about the nature of prayer, spirituality, listening to very, very religious ideas, very pluralistic ideas were coming out that nobody thought that they their tradition alone had the right answer, the monopoly of truth. And then when we were on a pan- the final panel, um, suddenly erupted in the hall a fundamentalist who started to shriek at us incoherently. What I could make out was that he, what he was saying uh, that uh, Jews and Muslims had uh, re- denied Jesus and therefore they were going to hell. And all of those of us who who sided with Jews and Muslims and uh, were also going to hell. Uh, and this was evil. And you couldn't couldn't hear much uh, because he was he was so incoherent with with rage and despair. What I could hear, however, was the note of pain in his voice. This was not just some loony. Uh, this was somebody who was suffering and in pain and felt profoundly threatened by what he, we were saying. And the point is though that we seven of us on this panel. We're all articulate people. We'd all been talking non-stop to each other and to the audience for the last two days. We were utterly struck dumb. None of us could say a word. We felt utterly winded uh, by this assault. Even me, and I should have known better because I'd just finished my book on fundamentalism. I couldn't think of anything to say. And we were looking at one another over an abyss a massive abyss. Eventually, this man was hustled out 
And the moderator said, well, I wish we we could have talked to him mm-hmm. because he is part of the conference of God, where is God at 2000? He's part of this conversation. Um, but we, but somehow we couldn't talk of one another. He was incoherent. Uh, we were struck dumb and useless. Um, and this is the problem that we're facing right. in a nutshell. It's also, it says something about the limits of words and dialogue yes. over this abyss, doesn't it? Um, it does. And I think we've got to, what we've got to do is listen to the pain of the other. Uh, we've got to listen. I could, you could hear the note of pain. You, you know how people sometimes rant on and you can hear the distress in it. It's yeah. r- almost like a, a note uh, in music. Um, and we've got to, when we look, say, at fundamentalist doctrine, we've got to see what pain and fear lies at the root of this. Tr- learn to decode fundamentalist ideology um, so that we see the... Uh, pain at their at its root. That's our. They've got to try and listen to us too, but our. That's their business. We've got to take the initiative. I think, or you know, I think so, and start to uh, listen to what they're trying to say. Because as we've learned to our cost, they're trying to express often very badly and in, in noxious ways um, anxieties and fears that no society, no government can safely ignore. Um, and so uh, our future, I think, depends on learning to listen. Now, it's it's maybe too late. I'm, I have no easy solution for this because I don't hear a great deal of pain and fear in Osama bin Laden. I think that this has moved on now mm. uh, and has stopped being fear and distress at, in some parts of the world, only in a tiny minority. But we can see, we saw on September the 11th, that it only takes a very few people to commit immense havoc these days. 19 people with pen knives or, right. and box cutters. Uh, so uh, even though it's only a tiny minority that and and we, we that is hardening into rage um, and implacable rage and righteousness and the same is happening too in the United States in uh, the Christian fundamentalist world mm. too there are Christian fundamentalists in this country who've gone way beyond m- the moral majority and Jerry Falwell and who've gone into something quite different uh, so uh, and, and more implacable and, and it may be impossible to get that back. But uh, with the fundamentalists in our own ranks that we come in contact with and we've got and and fundamentalists worldwide, we've got for our own survival to seek to understand the pain that lies at its root. That doesn't mean, of course, that we condone uh, evil actions like terrorism or killing. Not at all. But unless we try and and understand it, we're all lost uh, because we've got to have accurate intelligence in our campaign against terror. And you're really back at that virtue of compassion again. Yes. (laughs) It means to feel with, Mm. to feel with, not to feel sorry for, but to say, if I were in his position, maybe I would feel the same. Um, maybe I would feel safe. But, and, and then uh, we've got somehow to put, somehow, some, we've got caught up now in a spiral of violence where one atrocity leads to another atrocity, one strike leads to a counter strike, the other, and so we go on. Uh, somehow we need to break this escalating cycle of violence. I, I have no solution other than 
than compassion. But what we must do is reclaim religion and not let the terrorists or the extremists uh, hijack our traditions from us. Bring back the compassion. We have to finish, and I, I, I think I just want to ask you a couple more questions. Um, here's a large one, and then we'll come back to the personal. But there are many conversations we have in our world after September 11th, and we, we talk a lot about this fundamentalist threat and about the violence. Um, I'd like to know if in all of the thinking you do and the traveling and speaking, is there some dynamic of religious experience, perceptions of religion in evolving in this post-9-11 world that we're not talking as much about, that you'd like to name something important? Well, well I do think, actually, uh, in the United States, it's been very striking to me that people have wanted to understand this catastrophe in a religious way, uh, not just finding a quick secular solution, but in a religious way. And I also know that throughout uh, the, the land, from sea to shining sea, there are all kinds of in, little initiatives springing up, interfaith initiatives, uh, where pe- local people are from different faiths are coming together. People are going to the mosque. The m- Muslim scholars that I know are endlessly circling around the continent, <laughs> uh, talking about giving lectures, talking about uh, Islam. So something thing has broken open. And I think this is, it could be a growth point. We, it could be a growth point. Uh, the te- what has happened has been catastrophic and appalling and horrific. But uh, some of the, uh, I mentioned earlier that some of all the great world traditions grew up in uh, times of violence and terror. Every single one of them, from those in China, those in India, and those in the um, Middle East. Uh, We've recently been looking at the horrific Roman violence of crucifixion in Mel Gibson's film. Yes, we have. And and show, you know, whatever that one thinks of that film, it does show the violence that was part of imperial Rome. Um, and that this was, and from that came these great traditions, that the, a moment of terror and fear and violence can lead people to say, we've got to f- do something different. We've got to find a new solution. We've got to look deeper into our traditions. And f- this could be a growth moment if we let it, if we let ourselves harden in to attitudes of rage and despair and just vengefulness, then, you know, we'll we'll lose our our own spirit and our own spirit will be damaged. But people are struggling with this in in impressive ways, trying to find... I was so impressed that after September the 11th, Americans descended on the bookstores and snatched everything they could on On Islam. On the bookstores, that's right. And that lasted longer than descending on churches and mosques and synagogues. Well, they did. But still, still these these interfaith... the, these interfaith moments, like that, that panel we were on yes. a, a little while ago, well, are going I, on. And I think one reason, perhaps, that people connect so much with your work is that, like you, perhaps not to the same degree, many people are becoming sort of amateur theologians in our time. They yes. are educating themselves. And why not? Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is democracy, after all. <laughs> and all the religions tell us, don't wait to be taught what to think uh, by your leaders. Learn yourself. Um, and, uh, and and see that the riches that are there 
Uh, never mind what the official party line is. There's a lot more to all the traditions than that. Uh, a lot that can help us, even here in our very different world uh, and frightening world, where we're facing unprecedented problems. Each of our traditions has something, some deep wisdom to give us. You know, even having read to the end of your memoir. I'm not exactly sure how you're going to answer this question. Do you now consider yourself to be a religious person? You? Yes. Okay. Yes, I do. Okay. And I see my work, my, my study as, as prayer. Mm. Um, and it is, and I, I've tried to describe that in the book, that's both its silence, the uh, disciplines of the science of compassion, uh, where you... you get out of your own preconceptions and try and enter the world of another. This changes you. Um, and I love my work. I, I, I get while I'm studying, I will sometimes have intimations of awe and wonder and transcendence. And some of my Jewish colleagues tell me that's exactly what Jews do when they study Torah and Talmud and immerse themselves in the sacred texts. So, yes, I am a religious person and I'm, I'm still on a quest. I still haven't finished. I've, uh, who knows where I will f end up? But at the moment, um, I see my path as drawing great nourishment from other traditions, uh, learning to absorb them and trying to make uh, the delight of my private study accessible to other people. Well, I think that's your last word. Um, this has been a really delightful hour. My producer's signaling me from across the glass, so I'm going to be quiet for a moment and listen to her. You might want to tell... We're going to use T.S. Eliot's reading oh. on Ash Wednesday, but yeah. we have five minutes. If she would like to read or recite oh. Ash Wednesday for us. Oh, heavens. Do you hear, can you hear that? You can hear Kate's voice? Yes, I can. Do you but have Ash Wednesday? No, I you? don't. I do, but I you can't do, show it to you. But that's no good. Unless <laughs> Sheila happens to have, my publicist happens to have one in her bag. I, I don't have one, I'm afraid. We actually have an old LP of T.S. Eliot That'd reading be his own poetry. That would be Isn't much that better. Isn't that amazing? And, yes, you know, uh, and, he, and he does it beautifully. Oh, He does it beautifully. I, will, in that. I wanted to say, I also, I came, having been away from religion for a good 10 years, mm. came back reading T.S. Eliot while I was living in England. <laughs> These oh, right. same lines. Yes. There's something amazing about them. It's also the poetry of Tennyson. I looked up in memoriam. Yes. There's yes. some wonderful lines in there um, Absolutely. that make and me he think was... of where you ended up in a way. And, you know, the ability to doubt, the, 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 the voicing of doubt, and, 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 he, and the fact that he was an epileptic too, of course, ah. is, is the great irony. Yeah. Well, this has been lovely. Thank you. We will, um, we will do an hour out of this, and I think we're going to turn it around pretty quickly, and uh, we will send you that and let you know what's happening. And you may hear from my web person as he's putting the website together. Thank you very, okay. very much indeed. 